We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Rotowire Prospect Podcast. I'm your host, James Anderson. And this week, I am fortunate to be joined by Michael Richards, the 2022 TGFBI overall champion. Uh, Michael's also a prospect analyst over at Fantrax. He co-hosts the Call Up podcast on Triple Play Fantasy. Michael, so thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Hi, James. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. You know, as I've said before, you're my favorite prospect analyst, and I know I speak for a lot of people with that. I know firsthand how difficult it is to rank hundreds of players. A lot of lists, I can tell they're kind of thrown together. More of this is my favorite players list, but yours consistently stands up to the test. You can take them in the drafts. You can use them to make trades. It's a great resource, and I can tell how much thought goes into your updates. So basically, I just want to thank you for everything you do for the baseball community, and I'm happy to be here. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm just, just do my best. Um, but that, that means a lot. Um, you do really great work as well. There's, there's so many good, uh, people and good analysts in this community. So, um, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a fun community to be a part of. Um, what I kind of wanted to do for this episode is sort of, uh, I don't know if battle test is the right word, but just kind of go through, um, you know, I've obviously been working on my top 400 update and I thought we could go through some of the more kind of um, high profile risers, high profile fallers, some fun kind of would you rather uh, as, we, as we kind of move through. Uh, we'll talk about our, our favorite healthy pitching prospects who are left in the minor leagues. Uh, so a lot, a lot of fun stuff and hopefully uh, you can kind of help me um, flush out some of the, the issues I'm having with this update to the top 400 rankings. Um, you know, I think a lot of people can probably fill in the gaps in terms of what the top five to top seven or eight is probably going to look like. Um, you know, you got Jackson Holiday, Junior Caminero. Uh, those are probably going to be my first and second guys on the list. And then you got guys like Wyatt Langford, Dylan Cruz, uh, from the draft, you obviously have Jordan Lawler, Jackson Churio hanging around. I think Colt Keith has established himself as a top 10 prospect at this point. Uh, Paul Skeens uh, in that mix. Um, but then for me, then it kind of opens up a little bit. Um, you know, I know a lot of people would probably have like James Wood in there. Uh, he's he's kind of right around there for me. Uh, you also have, you know, the Orioles guys, Jordan Westberg, Colton Kowser. 
even more Orioles guys we'll talk about later. Um, but then I also think this is kind of the range, uh, kind of the borderline top 10, at least for me, uh, where I'm starting to consider Ethan Solace and Sebastian Walcott. And I think it's in- incredibly challenging to rank Solace and Walcott right now. Uh, obviously, they are just putting on uh, incredibly impressive performances. Uh, they're both 17 years old. Um, you know, Solace, what he's doing at single A, I don't, I don't think we've really ever seen anything like it from a player his age. And, you know, the catcher, I think Solace is kind of in that Adley Rutschman uh, range for me as a prospect where I don't really care about the fact that he's a catcher uh, because he is the best catcher, <laughs> you know, by by leaps and bounds, at least to me, compared to the rest of the catcher or the prospect eligible catchers. And, you know, you'd expect that Solace would be a guy that that is eventually hitting very high in, in the Padres lineup, um, playing about as much as possible. And then Walcott, like um, calm, cool, measured Jim Callis came on my pod a couple of weeks ago and was already comparing Walcott to Ellie De La Cruz. Um, you know, it's just incredibly fun to see a guy that we had really high expectations for like this, just breaking out in front of our eyes, uh, in the, the ACL Well, not in front of my eyes, but in front of, um, some eyes. And, and obviously we're following along with the stats and the video we can get our hands on, but, uh, just what, what are your general impressions after that, uh, kind of monologue about the idea of Ethan Salas and Sebastian Walcott? sort of being in that mix as, as kind of borderline top 10 prospects right now. Well, I gotta be honest that, that I'm not surprised that you're pushing them way up, but top 10 is seem is a little bit higher than I was thinking. I mean, this one got me excited as soon as I saw the show sheet, you know, the recent trend of fading J 15 players, you know, could, could be put to a halt with this duo. And obviously I view them as two of the best prospects long-term in the lower levels. The Welsh was pushing solace very early during FYPD season I mostly agreed with his perspective. My hesitation with Solace was his position and the fact that I didn't see notable speed and I couldn't quite wrap my mind around targeting a 16-year-old catcher early. I did get caught up in the Felon and Celestine hype since he's got flashier tools and the Mariners do a nice job developing international talent, but I also find myself drawn to Walcott. When I dug through that class, like his size and athleticism stood out versus his peers, I ended up taking him in the final round of an FYPD industry mock that we did this winter. And yourself and Michael Halpern even commented that Walcott was queued up as your final pick. So that obviously solidified my confidence. Uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say both players' careers have started as well as anyone could have hoped. I mean, I've been doing this long enough to know it's not common for a 17-year-old to play in low A, let alone not look overmatched. And it's particularly impressive for catchers since they're notorious for taking longer uh, than position players to develop usually. And Solace feels very much like the future top catching prospect and probably one of the better major league catchers down the road, just like Adley. I mean, the kid got invited to big league camp this year. He's clearly a unique talent. Walcott, on the other hand, he looks the part. Like, we we had the prospect itch on our show uh, right before the MLB draft, and he said Walcott would have been a top five pick in this draft. He also said Walcott's what 1-1 players look like. And I think he would have been the top prep player off the board if he was part of this draft. The only question is whether he would have jumped any of the top college players. 
as for where to rank these players, it's a great question. You know, when, when comparing the two, I give the edge to Walcott because of his position and speed potential. I think Solace has the higher floor. I trust his hit tool more at the stage. I mean, he feels like a really good bet to make the majors and have a long, productive career. But if we're talking about fantasy potential with young teenagers, I'm almost always going to go with the athletic infielder with size that stands out among his peers. Personally, I'd have Walcott around the back end of my top 25 with the understanding that he could rise. Solace would probably fall in the 30 to 40 range. But ultimately, we're splitting hairs. I don't I don't think you can go wrong here. I wouldn't argue with anyone who has Solace ranked higher. And I might be underselling these rankings too, but but I see these two players on track to be top 10 prospects. Yeah, it's it's just, it's very tough because it does, on the one hand, it's kind of like you don't want to overreact. You don't want to, you know, I'm always trying to learn from past mistakes. Um, and so I've gotten into trouble recently with, uh, putting the cart before the horse with, say, a Hedbert Perez or a uh, Reginald Preciado, um, where they performed well in complex ball and then uh, kind of ran into a brick wall against uh, single-A pitching. Um, so I'm, tr- I'm keeping that in the back of my mind. Um, you know, I think you're right. I think Salas definitely has the higher floor um it would be it would be pretty stunning given what he's done uh and it's it's not just when when you're talking about 17 year olds uh the the months do kind of matter as well like the you know 17 years old and a month basically for Ethan Sala so he's not he's not turning 18 until June of next year he might be like he might have played a game at double a before he turns 18 like that's that's in play um, and I just, you know, he, he, to have the kind of command of the strike zone that he has right now, I just don't see. And, and the fact he's getting to power, I don't really see him, him failing. Um, and then on, on the other hand with Walcott, uh, he has not faced, uh, this same caliber of pitching yet. And he's basically either hitting, an extra base hit or striking out right now. Uh, but guys with these type of tools, uh, he's also, you know, a young 17. He, he turns 18 in spring training next year. Uh, it's really hard to get your hands on a prospect with these type of tools. And uh, one way I've, I've phrased it to other people is sort of, if you have Sebastian Walcott, let's say, how many prospects would you trade him for straight up in a dynasty league? Um, like, would you be able to bring yourself to trade Sebastian Walcott for uh, an older, closer to the big leagues player without that type of ceiling? Like, uh, would you have too much fear of missing out to pull the trigger on that type of trade? Um, you know, for instance, if you're just kind of mid pack and the in your dynasty league, like you're not contending, you're not like a, a clear tear down rebuilder, but you're just kind of uh, in the middle. And say someone comes and offers you Jordan Westberg straight up for your Sebastian Walcott. Like, is that a is that a slam accept? Like, I feel like most people like would would find it weird to see Walcott ranked ahead of Westberg, 
But at the same time, I think most people would have a hard time trading Walcott right now at this stage. I totally agree with that. And certain players like this, like Solace and Walcott, once they reach a certain level, in, in my eyes anyways, I'm not really willing to trade them for closer proximity guys who don't have the upside. Like I'm just willing to take the risk that they stumble down the rankings or become a, a top five guy. Yeah, and I think – I think there's there's just uh, you know you're not getting Sebastian Walcott right now in a trade without giving up uh, a ton. Uh, at least I would I would think you wouldn't be able to in in serious dynasty leagues. That doesn't necessarily mean that Sebastian Walcott should be ranked um, top ten. I'm still kind of struggling with that. Uh, you know he will. I think both those guys will be top fifteen for me. Um, and yeah, it's just. Uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun to kind of see where this goes. Um, Walcott specifically, I think, is the tougher one. Like Salas, like I said, it's hard for me to see how things don't pan out for him in a, in a very positive way. Uh, Walcott very easily could be the number one prospect in baseball in a year, um, at least the number one dynasty prospect in baseball in a year. Um, but he could also go to single A and – you know, have some, have some growing pains and maybe the shine comes off a little bit. Um, so he's, he's kind of tougher to kind of dial in on exactly where to slot. Um, okay. Let's, let's go a little further down um, the rankings. Uh, we're still comfortably in uh, kind of my projected top 25 here, but uh, I think there's a lot in common with Everson Pereira Christian Encarnacion Strand and Heston Kierstead. Uh, obviously, uh, Encarnacion Strand is already up in the big leagues. Um, he'd obviously sort of punched that ticket a while ago. I think they were just kind of waiting for a spot to, to plug him in. But, um, you know, Heston Kierstead, I think you could look at what he's done at AAA and say that he's essentially big league ready. Uh, Everson Pereira, probably not quite that uh far along uh, he just got to triple a but again I, I think he's he's close to being ready he's on the 40-man roster already and the big thing that these three guys have in in common is power obviously um you know kirstad is going to profile towards the bottom of the defensive spectrum as is encarnation strand Pereira. i think will be a very uh, capable outfielder he's the only one of the three that's going to chip in uh, on the base paths um but it's really going to be these guys um, hitting for power in games that's going to keep them in, in a good spot in their lineups. Uh, do you see these three as close as I have them? Do you see a, a kind of clear front runner? Are you concerned about anything with, with Pereira, Encarnacion Strand, or Kirstead? Yeah, I mean, you said a lot of good things there. I mean, all three of them have had successful campaigns in the minors, we, you know, like with Encarnacion Strand recently getting called up. I'll start with CES, I mean, because he broke out last year, and, and the major questions I heard was how his hit tool is going to translate the highest level, and will his lack of defensive upside make it hard for him to secure a regular role? And both are reasonable questions, in my opinion. I, I don't think the defensive issues have really changed. He's, he's capable of playing below average defense at third, but profiles more first base DH guy, which does put pressure on his bat. You know, he ended up reducing his K percentage in AAA this season and really kind of answered the questions I have. I still think he probably profiles as someone who could get cold for stretches when he's not seeing the ball well, but I think he's got a legit 30 plus home run pop and 
and the ballpark will help keep his average higher than it might be playing in another situation. I mean, that ballpark's really offensive heavy. So Kerstad's interesting. He's been really good this year. Obviously, the injury set him back in his development heading into the season. We're talking about a number two overall pick out of college a few years ago and who started the year as a 23, 24-year-old in double-A. So I think he's he's done exactly what we'd hoped for from a player with this pedigree and situation. The most important thing in my mind is he's showing he can get through a full season intact. And I suspect he would have been in the big leagues by now if not for the setback. But overall, he profiles as a really nice power hitter, as you said, corner outfield spot. But I've always had some reservations about his ultimate upside. I, I like him more than I ever have right now. So I'm, I'm open to having my mind change. But I'm just wondering if he'll ever be anything more than like a mid to late round power bat playing his home games in a park that kind of suppresses power. Pereira holds a special place in my heart, you know, as I've liked him going back two or three years now. And I know you're the same. Anytime he's playing well, you're you're leading the charge. I, I know our friend Dylan White from Baseball America was telling me he, there's a lot to like under the hood. I, I believe he said he projects to be a 30 home run, 15 stolen base threat in his peak. And obviously that's going to have a lot of fantasy appeal if it comes to fruition. To me, he's one of the easier prospects to analyze. Like his power is legit. It's his carrying tool. I'd, I'd expect to see a lot of red on his stat cast page and, and power relevant numbers. And he's also shown the ability to steal some bases, like you said, and should chip in there, especially in this new environment. It simply comes down to how much contact issues and swing and miss he has in his game. Essentially, I give the edge to CS over Kirsten Prayer because I value a slugger at first base in an extreme hitter's park over outfielders who have some red flags in their game. Kirstad with injuries and minimal speed, Pereira with elevated K rate, who might be an average runner in his prime. I do think Pereira has the highest upside of the trio if he can further reduce his K rate and is able to steal bases, uh, especially later in his, into his 20s. I, I mean, I can see someone making a ras- rational case for any of them, depending on what you value the most. I value the infielder who's in the majors in a park that will highlight his strengths and hide some of his weaknesses. CES seems like the piece that will maintain his value the best as a slugging first baseman unless one of those outfielders elevates themselves into a higher tier, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, th- I think Encarnacion Strand has the the highest home run uh, upside probably Uh of these three and it's partly the park uh the reds do have the best park in the majors for hitting home runs in uh, but i it's also just ces every everywhere he's gone he's just put up ridiculous power numbers and um you know i could if you said only one of these guys is going to have a 40 homer season i would bet on Ekranacion strand being the guy uh you know, the uh, Oriole Park at uh, Camden Yards this year, at least, it's not, it's actually playing um, fairly well for lefty power, uh, according to StatCast. Um, so I. Righty, righty power there? Is that, does it suppress righty power in Camden Yards? I don't know. I could be um, wrong. Right yeah. Now. No, yeah. It, right. It's bottom five for righties and, uh, at least this year, uh, I didn't use three-year rolling averages um, because it's only been these dimensions for a year and a half. But uh, top ten, it's it's ninth for for righty power this year. Um, though you know those are kind of loose loose uh, numbers, I think, given the sample size. But um, 
yeah, I mean, Kirstad also, you know, another thing with these three guys really is, is like, it's no, it's no guarantee that they'll hit uh, as high in the lineup as we might want uh, or, or think they deserve to hit uh, when everyone's rolling and everyone's healthy. Um, like Kirstad specifically, obviously there's going to be a lot of a mouths to feed there in Baltimore. Um, so, I mean, he could be like a, a number six hitter or something who hits 30 plus homers. Um, Pereira, I've, I've been using kind of like a, a good Tyler O'Neill as a cop for Pereira for a while. Um, you kind of laid out the, the projected you know, potential 30, 15 uh, courtesy, courtesy of Dylan. Um, but that, that is kind of what I'm hoping for with Pereira. Like you're going to get the strikeouts are going to be there. Uh, but he's going to hit the ball really hard. He's going to run a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's just it's it's tough. And these are three names before uh, CES got the call. People would be sort of asking for like who are the next guys that, that could maybe help this year. Uh, it's gotten so dry in the minors in terms of just guys who are ready and could be impactful that I've even been including Kirstead and Pereira in those types of answers, not because I think it's likely that Pereira or Kirstead come up and uh, contribute significant value this year, but I just think they, they are kind of on the short list of guys who are pretty close to being ready. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a fun group of, of power bats. Uh, I kind of have them back to back to back right now with uh, Pereira first, uh, just because of the, the speed factor there. Um, yeah, he's a he's a better athlete than CES or Kirstead. Probably ages a bit better than those guys. Um, you know, you're not going to have to worry about him ever being uh, UT only. I don't think. Whereas you you could end up having to worry about that with CES or Kirstead. Um, but yeah, I think they're all they all have a case as as top twenty prospects at this point to me. Um, okay, let's. Let's pivot to uh, a question involving another Orioles hitter, uh, Kobe Mayo, uh, who just got the promotion to AAA. Uh, you know, he's he was just absolutely fantastic statistically at Double A, uh, hit for power, you know, worked the count, good swing decisions. Um, how would you compare Kobe Mayo's dynasty value right now to Kyle Manzardo, who? Uh, is is probably sliding in the opposite direction. Um, it's it's tough with guys like Manzardo because uh, on the one hand, there's a lot of stuff that you can point to to kind of um, excuse his sort of mediocre surface stats this year. Uh, I do think he's been unlucky. I know he's uh, been dealing with uh, some stuff in his personal life. Um, so I, it's not that... Manzardo has just been a colossal failure and needs to be pushed down the rankings. But at the same time, uh, he is a first base slash DH type of prospect. Um, and really, we want to see those guys form at a very high level offensively, uh, no matter what level of the minors they're at, no matter what age they are. And Manzardo's just turned 23 and he's a triple A. So, He's at a he's at a spot where we would we would be expecting more production than than he's been 
putting forth. And, you know, Kobe Mayo is, is now AAA as well. He's uh, a year younger than Manzardo, over a year younger, I believe. And, you know, Mayo's probably a better athlete. Uh, I, I do expect him to end up at first base uh, when it's all said and done, just because of the Orioles' other options. But I do think it's kind of become a, you know, a, a justifiable question of whether Kobe Mayo should be ahead of Kyle Manzardo now uh, for Dynasty. What, what say you? Well, I think this is a really good discussion. I can't recall myself ever seriously considering which player I preferred until now, you know, when I saw this. And dating back to early last year, I consider myself a big believer in Manzardo, not too dissimilar to yourself. I know how high you are on a bat, particularly if they're a first base only prospect and you have him inside your top 10, you know, that's where I was on Manzardo entering this year. So his ability to take walks and limit strikeouts and sweet left-handed stroke just had me convinced he'd be a quality starter at first base. And to be quite honest, not a lot has changed in my eyes in that regards to Manzardo. Obviously, he hasn't exploded through AAA like a player who's way too advanced for the level, like some hoped. But maybe that was never a realistic expectation. I I still view Manzardo as a high-level dynasty prospect at first base. And it, it won't surprise me if he becomes a top-five option at the position down the road. That The main issue... I have is is the organization. It's pretty well known the Rays don't always function like most organizations. Some prospects get slow cooked in the minors, and there's there's always risk of en- ending up in a platoon. But but ultimately, these factors have more of a negative impact on my perception of Manzardo than the talent of the player. If he can rise above the platoon risk and solidify himself as their regular first base, I I see a long productive career ahead. And with Mayo, I'm coming from a little different angle. I, I've always kind of found myself on the opposite spectrum of the masses with him anytime the consensus isn't given him proper respect, like during his FIPD year or last season, I find myself liking him more than most people. And during his huge breakout season in 2021, I obviously liked him, but felt he was being pushed up too high on lists for a non-speed player with no experience in the upper levels. But it's finally at a place where I feel myself and most people are on the same page. And I'm as high on Mayo as I've ever been. He's essentially producing the same way he did during his breakout year, but this time it's at the highest level of the minors, and, and he's still relatively young, like you said. When comparing the two, I can see why they might be converging in a similar range on your list. Uh, Manzardo is slightly backed into his way there while Mayo is trending up, but if I had to choose one, I, I think I'm still leaning Manzardo. I think Mayo probably has a bit more power upside, but I still value that plus hit tool Manzardo brings to the table more than any tool the combo has. Essentially, I'd rather have a left-handed hitting first baseman with a plus hit tool who should develop consistent power than a right-handed hitting first baseman with above-average hit tool and, and big raw power. But again, it's it's a good debate, and I can see a case for either. It really depends on which type of profile you lean towards. I give the better edge to the hit tool when it's close. Yeah, I think that that's all very reasonable. Um, and I definitely don't want to... It's kind of more about mayo sort of pushing up into this range then uh panic time if you've got manzardo or anything like that um for every every you laid it out and and i tried to lay it out like i definitely uh think that you know if, if someone's just evaluating manzardo off of just his stat line this year then i think he's a very easy buy low uh, i doubt many people are doing that but uh you know, he's got a 269 Babbitt right now, and he'd never had a Babbitt below 333 uh, coming into the year. So 
Um, you know, strikeouts and walks are basically where exactly where we would have wanted them to be. Uh, you know, exit velocity, hard hit numbers are, are actually kind of up compared to, to last year. It's just, uh, you know, some, some bad luck and some, some off field, uh, stuff that he's got to worry about. But, um, yeah, I, I could see Manzardo having a huge second half. I, I am back to, uh, for what it's worth, uh, I am back to preferring Curtis Mead uh, to Kyle Manzardo. Um, and I do think Mead is a decent option um, and maybe even the best option in terms of hitters that uh, you could get some return on a stash from right now uh, just because so many others have, have gotten the call, but um, yeah, that was, that was a good discussion on on Mayo versus Manzardo. I think they'll both be uh, in my top 25 on the coming update. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's head to a break and uh, get a message from our sponsors. But when we come back, I want to ask Michael about uh, just how far up the rankings Josue DePaula of the Dodgers should be pushed after really getting dialed in against single-A pitching. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. 
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. We know the weather can impact how far a ball can fly, but we never know what all the heat and humidity or cold air is really doing to the ball. The Home Run Forecast Index gives us an easy way to determine how good or bad the air is for ball flight. The index is calculated by measuring stadium-specific weather conditions and is displayed on a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being the most unfavorable for a good ball flight and 10 indicating the most favorable air. There is a strong correlation between the index and the number of runs scored per game and the number of home runs hit. Games that have the highest index, 10 for the whole game, average over 10 runs and 2.8 homers over the course of the, of the year. An index is created for each game, and you can see what it will be in any stadium and how the weather's influence might change over the course of the game, as well as the wind direction. Right now, you can get access to the HRF premium site for only $5 a month and see what the index will look like for every hour of every game. Go to homerunforecast.com now to sign up. All right, back with Michael Richards. And as I mentioned before the break, uh, Josue DePaula, uh, if anyone has not really been paying attention, um, he's been really dialed in at single A. Uh, and I believe he just turned 18 in, yeah, he just turned 18 in May. So one of the youngest hitters at single A. And he didn't really do anything his first five or six games, but. Uh, DePaul has got a 318 average, a 411 OBP, uh, a homer, a couple triples, nine doubles, five steals, and a 12% strikeout rate over his last 107 at bats. So, uh, coming into the year, Josue DePaula was right on that kind of list um, with the Sebastian Walcotts, um, you know, with the Junior Camineros uh, as a potential, you know, the next big thing type of hitting prospect and I don't I haven't seen too many people talking about it but he's basically kind of doing exactly what you would have wanted for a potential phenom outfielder at single a to do and I'm curious uh how you would value DePaula right now in dynasty compared to Max Clark slash Walker Jenkins or whoever you think the best prep hitter from this most recent draft class is uh, because DePaul is uh, younger than Clark and Jenkins, and he's and he's performing in, against pro pitching. Um, do you think it's close? Do you think it's reasonable to compare those those three? Yeah, this is another intriguing trio you came up with. I mean, after digging into each, I'm I'm behind the hardcore prospect people on the giraffe and FYPD stuff, but I can see why it's a debate how to rank them. And I'll start by saying I'm definitely a believer in Jose DePaul. Like he hasn't. He hasn't gone on a tear until recently, those numbers you just said, but it's important to remember he's only 18 in low A, and, and I've said this before, but that, that jump from the complex ball to low A can be telling, especially for a teenager. It's it's a noticeable level increase, so anything that's not built on a solid foundation can get exposed, and I've seen countless examples of 18-year-olds make the leap to low A only to look well below at league average, so I'm actually quite impressed with DePaula. He's, he's definitely one of my favorite teenage prospects. 
I also love the organization that's developing him. Max Clark is obviously one of the top prep players in the country, National High School Player of the Year, I believe, and he has a plus hit tool average power with double plus speed, according to MLB.com. If those scouting grades end up being accurate, you know, the fantasy feel is pretty evident. Typically outside of well-rounded monster in every facet of the game, I'm I'm generally drawn to this type of profile. Um, a plus hit tool with double plus speed usually turns out pretty well, particularly if the player can get to some level of power. With Clark, I, I get the sense he's a pretty high upside player. I think the biggest knock on him is for his value is the organization that drafted him. I mean, the Tigers haven't been good for a while. It's one of the worst hitters parks for home runs, but I can see a lot of extra base hits into the gaps combined with good stolen base tolls and helpful average long-term. Essentially, even if he doesn't grow into massive power or it's held in check by his home park, I still think he's got a fantasy-friendly skill set. Just a, a less-than-ideal landing spot in terms of FYPDs, but I think he's pretty clearly the Tigers' top prospect once Colt Keith clears the list. Uh, Walker Jenkins is the player I was least familiar with before diving, doing some research. I, I got to say my first impression is pretty favorable. From everything I can gather, he looks to have potential for an above-average to plus hit tool, double-plus raw power with above-average speed. So that sounds like a pretty well-rounded, high-upside player to me. I like his six-foot-three frame and sweet left-handed stroke. It, it seems he did have plus speed, but began slowing down a bit as he physically matured. I haven't seen him play a lot outside of a few clips, but he seems to check a lot of boxes for me. The size, the big power, makes good hard contact with some athleticism. This is a player I could see really climbing up lists if the hit tool plays immediately in pro ball, and he's definitely a different type of player than someone like Max Clark, but it, it makes a lot of sense to me that these players are viewed in a similar tier today. Overall, this was probably one of the tougher ones for me to differentiate. I mean, all three players have skill sets that are different but intriguing in their own way. If I had to pick one today, I'd probably lean towards DePaula slightly, but it's mostly because I've, I've seen how his game translate in full season ball, but it wouldn't shock me to see any of these players emerge as the most valuable of the bunch. My belief in DePaula and his organization is ultimately the tiebreaker, but I could see myself ranking these guys back to back to back. Like, I like all of them. Yeah, and that's exactly where I have them. I have them uh, back to back to back. Uh, do you think DePaula is this? Should he be up in that conversation with Solace and Walcott, um, based on what he's what he's done so far against full season pitching? Or do you think it's it's better to have him like a notch below those guys? Uh, yeah, I think I think the discussion needs to be had, but. At the very at this very moment, I'd still have him a notch below, but but willing to push him up if it if this continues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I kind of feel like he's about uh, DePaula. That is, I, I kind of feel like he's about to go on uh, a bit of a power binge. Uh, he does just have the one home run uh, thus far, but uh, ten doubles in thirty four games. I I could. I could see DePaula being kind of the the talk of uh, dynasty players at some point before the year is done, and it could end up looking when when the season ends could could end up looking like DePaula is a, a clear top ten guy. Um, so that's kind of the trajectory I'm I'm seeing for him right now. Um, okay, this this next question is is uh, kind of pitting two guys who are um, having extremely productive years, but. Uh, aren't that similar in terms of players. And that's uh, Yonkeel Fernandez with the Rockies uh, versus Roman Anthony of the Red Sox. 
both guys that are going to have uh, up arrows next to their names on the update. Uh, Roman Anthony kind of gives me uh, Christian Yelich type of vibes a little bit uh, from the left side, just uh, really works the count, uh, gets gets great leverage on his home run balls, has has some speed, is, is a pretty good athlete for his size. And then Yankeel Fernandez is just a a power hitter who's up there to do damage at all costs. And uh, he got the aggressive promotion to double uh, a Hartford, uh, I believe ahead of any of the other guys on that Spokane team, even though he was a couple years younger than all of them. And he, he does have five home runs in 17 games at double a, but uh, the strikeouts have, have crept up against that, that big jump in competition from high A to double a uh, no longer as a, as a, hitter friendly home park to lean back on so like slash line strikeouts are there for for Jan Kiel, but uh, he is just just 20 he turns 21 in january um so i mean it's 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 a fun one i don't, I don't know if you have a strong preference on these guys well yeah as soon as i saw this one i knew it'd be an interesting debate i mean i think it's safe to say fernandez and anthony are two of the that have helped their dynasty stock the most this season. Both players were known to a degree, but neither was being considered a top prospect in from the year. I'll start by saying I've seen some comps on social media comparing Fernandez to Jordan Alvarez, and I think that's irresponsible. That would be the absolute best-case outcome, and the likelihood of it occurring would be probably under 1%. It's not to suggest Fernandez can't be a really nice player in his own right. I just have issues with taking it to the extreme, and he definitely has legit power potential and a better hit tool than your traditional like high strikeout slugger. He's had an excellent season. I mean, I think he's earned a spot in the top 100. My biggest concern with Fernandez is whether or not he can be developed properly in the Rockies organization. But if he can get up to Coors Field without getting derailed, he feels as good of bet as anyone in their system to be a 3-4 hitter whose stats get inflated by the ballpark. And I don't really question the player as much as the organization, but the pieces are present here. Um for him to be like a, a valuable, even if he doesn't like reach his ultimate potential. Now, Roman Anthony, on the other hand, is a player I've taken some time to come around on. Nothing against him personally, but I was so locked into redraft last year that he kind of got lost in the shuffle for me And once FYPDs rolled around. And I think his average hit tool on fan graphs influenced me more than it should have because I'm typically interested in players with plus raw power and above average speed. I did see some buzz from our buddy Chris Clegg about Anthony and Tyler Locklear in particular, but... I didn't investigate as deeply as I should have. Suffice to say, like Anthony has recently become one of the more buzzier names I've, I'm seeing on Twitter these days and appears to be a good bet to move up a lot of lists when they're updated. Considering he just turned 19 years old and is having success in high A, has shown flashes of power and speed, there's a lot to like here. If, if his hit tool is upgraded this offseason, every indication I see is that he's at least above average. And we could be looking at a high upside teenager with above average to plus tools across the board. As far as where I stand on the duo with each other, I, I would have told you going into this that Fernandez was my pick, but after diving into both players, I find myself leaning towards Roman Anthony. For fantasy purposes, I think the speed difference will be a factor. I do think Fernandez probably ends up with more power, but I think the speed will make up for that. And I, I see them in similar tiers right now, but historically I lean more towards the speed threat because I know how much that plays into hitter values for fantasy. And but like a lot of these comparisons, I won't push back super hard if someone likes Fernandez more. He's He's the more traditional slugger. His power seems like the most potent individual tool of the pair. I just sense that Anthony might possess the more well-rounded skill set for roto-type format. So 
that's how I differentiate between them today. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's definitely right. Um, Anthony is very well-rounded. I'm glad you shouted out uh, Chris Clegg too. He was definitely on Anthony very early. Um, It's a, it's, it's been a, it's been a wild season for Anthony because he was, you know, all patience and speed at single a um, and, you know, there are some questions kind of about his passivity at the plate. Um, but then since getting the bump to high A, he's just taken off as as a power hitter. Um, so that's that's gonna be interesting to track. I mean, it's only twenty games for Anthony at high A, but like I could I could see the case for having him even like top twenty at this point. Um and he is he is quite a bit safer than Fernandez. Um, Fernandez actually kind of has uh, some similarities to C- Christian Encarnacion Strand, who we discussed earlier, just in terms of his um, free swinging nature and just ability to put up monster power numbers uh, everywhere he goes. Uh, and then in terms of the Rockies, yeah, I mean, I don't think they're a, you know, an above average org when it comes to developing uh, prospects or anything like that but I don't I don't really see them like ruining uh, Fernandez necessarily um, he's just got so much power that his hit tool combined with course field is, is kind of a perfect fit uh, if he's if he's getting the playing time and uh, he is at least left-handed but um, yeah, he could put up some huge seasons with the help of Coors Field. Um, so very different players, but I, I tend to agree with you. I'd prefer Anthony. Uh, I think he's got a bit more upward momentum uh, in the short term on the prospect rankings uh, as well. Uh, okay, this is this is my favorite uh, question slash topic uh, that we're going to get to today. Um, but I wanted to hear... Uh, and I, I feel like this is kind of important to kind of lay out um, because we talk a lot about, well, like all the pitchers are gone. All the pitchers have been promoted. Uh, there's no one left to, to stash or anything like that. Um, but I wanted to just actually break it down with names and see who you think the top five healthy pitching prospects are who have never pitched in the majors. So that can include Paul Skeens, obviously, who was just drafted, uh, I phrased it to kind of exclude Andrew Painter and Ricky Tiedemann uh, and guys, you know, guys who have pitched in the majors. So that would exclude, you know, Max Meyer, um, you know, Brandon Fott, whoever. Um, So it's just, it's, it's a completely new wave of pitchers who are going to occupy this space. Uh, These are not, you know, household names for, for the redraft players out there. Uh, And I'm excited to see, where you go. I've kind of got mine narrowed down to six names. Um, and I'm interested to see sort of which five guys you go with for the top five healthy pitching prospects who've never pitched in the majors. Yeah, this was an interesting one. So I'll, I'll start by saying when I pulled up the list of pitching prospects, it was pretty impressive how many of them had already made their MLB debut. Like you said, it's going to be an entirely new crop of players at the top for your next update. And anytime I'm asked to rank pitching prospects, my mind immediately goes back to a tweet I saw you put out about a year or two ago, something along the lines of 
you can ask 10 prospect analysts for their top 10 pitching prospects and you'll have 10 different lists. And that's just really stuck with me. You know, I've talked about the importance of looking at players in tiers rather than being enamored with the specific number next to their name. And ultimately, we as a community are trying to identify the pitchers with the unique characteristics that make them stand out among their peers. And one down season, one major injury, anything goes off track and pitchers' values can tank. So, But we've also seen how important being right can be. Like, really good pitchers are quite valuable in fantasy. So... Um, it can be a challenge, you know, just getting the ones that work out. You know, it's it's hard from season to season, even in redraft. Like there, there's a reason some people say there's no such thing as a pitching prospect, and and I don't think it's because they don't think any pitchers will be good. It's it's that they can't tell which ones will work out with a high enough degree of accuracy. And, and we've seen the number one pitching prospect flounder before, and and others emerge from the shadows. So anyone who can skillfully and consistently identify quality pitchers has huge edge on the competition. So all that being said, my top five healthy pitching prospects that haven't made their MLB debut are, I have number one, Paul Skeens for the Pirates. Number two, I have Tink Hentz for the Cardinals. Number three, I have Jacob Mizorowski for the Brewers. Number four, Cade Horton for the uh, Cubs. And number five, Kyle Harrison for the Giants. I obviously would have included Painter and Tiedemann if healthy and I may be overlooking someone. Uh, I also I should also mention uh, Connor Phillips. He's kind of in that range with me too. Um, I may be overlooking someone, but that's just where I'm at today. Still, still very much up for debate. Everything I can gather suggests Skeens is like a different tier than these others. I might be higher on Tink Hens than most people, but I've I've said he's got real chance to be, become the number one pitching prospect. And the group of Harrison, Mizorowski, Phillips. Uh, Kate Horton, even to a lesser degree, you know, they all have really good stuff with, with command being the kind of key to their ultimate potential. And any of them could be like frontline starters, in my opinion, if their command cooperates. I'd, and so, yeah, that, that's basically where I'm at. Uh, the, the order, I'm pretty set on schemes at one, and I'm also pretty confident in Hens at two. But the three through six, I could be talking to any of those players, depending on the situation. Yeah, well, you know, in reference to that, uh, that tweet you mentioned, you and I actually do have the same top four, uh, not in the exact same order, but um, I, you know, I've Skeens at one, and then I have uh, I have Mizorowski, Horton, and Hentz uh, essentially back to back to back. I have AJ Smith Schauber in there as well, uh, but he doesn't really count for the purpose of this question. But like, I, I've got Mizorowski, Horton, and Hentz in the 40s. Uh, Skeen's obviously in the top 10. Um, and I think, you know, hence Horton, Mizorowski, it's just all about the stuff and the upside. And there's different types of risk with all three of them. Um, you're probably more command control with risk with uh, Mizorowski. Um, you know, there's, I think there's some durability questions with all three since we just haven't really seen them do it um yeah i i i really like all three uh you know Mizorowski, horton and hence and so that's that's fun that we each had them uh top four and i wouldn't really quibble with the order of of those three um my fifth spot came down to jared jones of the pirates 
and Chase Hampton of the Yankees. Um, I, I like, uh, I like Harrison as well. Harrison's kind of, I think he would be seventh for me. Um, Jones is at triple a, I think, uh, I've talked about him in the past. I, I just think there's a lot of upside there. Uh, the quality of his fastball, like that's, that's something I'm trying to, um, adjust for a little, a little more than I even used to, uh, just look really kind of focusing on the quality of the fastball. Um, I think that's sort of where, where things went wrong with, uh, Brandon Fott, for instance, um, Gavin Stone, I think there was decreased velocity compared to, uh, spring training and, and 2022 as well. But, uh, it's, you know, there's, there's elevated injury risk with guys who throw ridiculously hard, um, which is something I've always factored in, uh, to some degree. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, you know, betting on guys with, uh, plus or 70 grade fastballs, um, I'm, I'm more inclined to kind of do that. Uh, and, and, you know, just factoring in recent, uh, flubs with guys like, uh, Brandon Fott. Cause when you come in with like a 93 mile an hour fastball, uh, big league hitters, you know, the margin for error is very small. Um, what do you think about Jones and, and Hampton? I mean, I know Hampton's, uh, pop-up prospect of the year, uh, which, you know, it's kind of pop-up prospect. I don't usually associate that with as from the most recent draft class. Um, so he kind of is the sort of sleeper of the 2022 draft and the pop-up prospect of the year. Uh, Jared Jones, I think it was just a simple case of him getting the command and control into a range where people, uh, see a, a decent chance of him making it as a starting pitcher uh, compared to a reliever, which I think was the general assumption coming into the year. Um, any thoughts on Hampton or Jones before we move on there? Not, I mean, not much more than you threw in. These guys are two guys that I, I did look at them for this, but I just didn't have them. Jones is one that I got to be honest. I'm, I'm just less familiar with him. I, for some reason he's slipped under my radar. I've heard you talk about him and I would put more faith in you on anything you say about him than I can say right now. Uh, it, everything you said is true. I mean, he should be up in this mix as well. A really high upside guy that's in AAA, you know, that has command issues. So I, I can't argue with that. And Hampton's definitely been one of the, the big pop-ups this year. I still have a little bit of hesitation with Yankees pitching prospects with the recent track record of injuries and just underperformance. But his performance this season is noteworthy. I just still wouldn't personally put him up with these guys yet. And then another thing I wanted to mention with just this state of the uh, top pitching prospects uh, that we kind of outlined, this is why, you know, I've been preaching this for a long time, but this is why you should not trade for pitching prospects when their value gets high. Uh, Mizorowski and Horton were both available to anyone in a first year player draft. Uh, maybe if you had, maybe if you're in one of those 30 team leagues or maybe a 20 team league, you couldn't have gotten Horton at pick 20 or pick 30, but generally you could have 
gotten Horton with your first or second round first year player draft pick. You could have gotten Mizorowski with your second or third round first year player draft pick. Uh, the dynasty leagues where I've had Tink Hentz, I picked him up off waivers early last season, but he could have been had later in deep league first year player drafts. Uh, Jones and Hampton were both guys who in most of the dynasty leagues I play in were available on waivers early this season. So you have to be getting these guys when the value is low and you have to be targeting guys with upside and it doesn't take that long for their values to go way up. Uh, if you're trading for, you know, Grayson Rodriguez before the season or, you know, you're trading for like Mackenzie Gore, like the off season after he was at double A or same thing with like Forrest Whitley or whoever, like you're paying for the sort of the, they've got name value. They've got performance. They've got pedigree. They've got upside. And it's just, it's not a good way to acquire these guys. You want to get them on the cheap. Um, maybe you sell high on them and then you keep um, pulling off that, that gambit. But uh, all the, most of the best pitching prospects um, and most of the best pitchers in the big leagues at one point were available um, for, for a pretty low price in dynasty leagues. Uh, Skeens is obviously the, the big exception there. You need a top three or top four first year player draft pick to get him. But, um, you know, that's Strider in recent years. You know, yeah. Just one of these guys that was available for free. I picked him up in leagues off waivers and now he's the best pitcher in baseball. Yeah. I mean, Zach Gallen was available off waivers not too long ago as well. Um, okay. We're, we're going a little long here, but I did want to get your take on uh, hot stretches from super pedigree prospects of uh, years past uh, Marco Luciano and or Elvis Martinez both uh, recently got promoted to triple a. They both finished their runs at double a very impressively uh, or Elvis Martinez. I think it was kind of well-documented just how much he was striking out and how much power he was hitting for very early in the season. But uh, Martinez over a pretty long stretch, uh, really got the strikeouts in check at double A, uh, had 14 home runs and a sub 20% strikeout rate in his last 165 at bats at double A, uh, hit 291, 411 OBP over that stretch. Um, I know Blue Jays beat writers have been talking about the fact that uh, Matt Chapman's a free agent after the year, and maybe that could be our Elvis Martinez's spot next year. And then Marco Luciano. He's got a shorter stretch and probably a less impressive stretch of excellence at double A to point to, but nonetheless, he's, he still did uh, really right the ship there in about uh, his last hundred at bats or so before getting the bump to triple A. Uh, so are you buying the resurgence of Luciano and Aurelvis Martinez, or is this a opportunity to sell high? That's a good question. I mean, I've liked these guys going back for a couple of years at this point. You know, I saw the massive power potential from shortstop slash third base perspective, and they've also been young for the levels throughout. I, I mean, I even had them both as their top dynasty prospect in their organizations at one point. So I had high hopes for each. I mean, it's kind of been a roller coaster, like you said, mostly downward in a lot of ways. But even though their names carry a lot of appeal, it's becoming clear a lot of prospect people are concerned about their swing and miss in both their games. And 
when you add in the fact that neither player projects to contribute much in stolen bases, you're essentially looking at a three and a half category contributor if everything clicks, but more likely a two to three category player that mostly helps in home runs and RBIs and hurts your average. I mean, both of these players, like you said, just got bumped up to AAA at age 21, so I think it would be a mistake to completely dismiss them. But I also think both players have kind of shown what type of players they are. There's not a ton of mystery unless unless they improve significantly, which is something I can't completely rule out because of their age and level. But the, the power is real for each. Neither of them will be a factor on the bases. They both tend to strike out too much for high-end prospects. I'd probably rank Luciano in the 100 to 150 range. And I can't really figure, put my finger on it, but I still believe in him a little bit more than, you know, Aurelvis. He's probably in more of the 150 to 200 range for me, and I feel less confident in him. Ultimately, I'm concerned they're both going to be liabilities and batting average for fantasy. So in a sense, I am buying them as viable targets considering their age and level and positions, but not buying them as completely rebounded to their premium prospects as they're, they're just too many players with more athleticism who don't carry the hit tool concerns and all things being equal I prefer players with that foundation rather than slow footed big power bat who may hit 240 or much worse that's not to suggest players like this have no value I just I just think we've seen what players how do I put this I just think we've seen from what each player brings to the table and that's not going to be enough to be an earlier on pick and redraft down the road without uh, further improvements yeah that's that's fair. And, uh, you know, I think I'm more interested in just kind of tracking Martinez, I think, than Luciano, just because uh, he got the strikeout rate so low, uh, much lower than I ever thought he would get it, that uh, I, I think I think we are kind of seeing some improved skills growth with uh, Martinez um, relative to Luciano. I do like this uh, part too. Aurelis. Say that again. I do like his park. His yeah, park. yeah, and it's a uh, you know my. I mean, both of their teams are very invested in these guys. Uh, so like they are going to get like Martinez and Luciano are going to get opportunities to succeed. That uh, similarly performing players with much less pedigree would not necessarily get. So um, that's something to factor in as well. Um. Okay. Uh, do you want to hit on Drew Jones, Connor Norby? Do you want to hit on Chase DeLauder, Colson Montgomery? Um, do you want to hit on uh, kind of deeper Jones, like, if I can choose Jones? Yeah. Yeah. Like let's let's talk about Drew Jones because I. Uh, it's not uh, people aren't going to be happy about it, and uh, I understand that. I mean, I. I was not faced with the on the clock decision of Drew Jones versus Jackson Holiday in any first year player drafts. Uh, I did have it as a one A one B situation, um, but I had the wrong guy in the B spot and the wrong guy in the A spot. So I definitely feel for anyone who did take Jones over Jackson Holiday, uh, but I also just you know, there's, there's enough concern, I think, um, from scouts with Jones, but also just, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, guys like Josue DePaula, um, Ethan Salas, uh, 
you know, really kind of doing what they, well, Ethan Salas is doing more than what he was supposed to do, but like, you know, Josue DePaul is doing kind of what he's supposed to do uh, at single A. Uh, Drew Jones has been um, pretty bad in small samples, both at single A and um, very small samples at the complex level. But um, I, I'm kind of in the camp of I'd be willing to sell low on Jones right now, um, just kind of based on what I'm hearing and uh, just what he's putting down in terms of, you know, is, is this, are these injuries, these uh, muscle injuries, I don't know necessarily how real they have all been and whether or not they are sort of being used to kind of mask some developmental time. Um, but I mean, he's, he turns 20 uh, this off season. I think we can kind of assume that he'll be going into the off season without uh, any notable success against full season pitching. Um, so I am, I'm kind of in the camp of getting out in front of this and being willing to sell a little low on Jones. There is a certain point where you just, you got to ride it out, but um, what, where, where are you at on, on Drew Jones? Yeah, you said a lot of good things there. I mean, you can count me among the people that had Drew Jones as the top prospect for FIPDs this season. I really like Jackson Holiday as well, but I was, I was getting conflicting reports about what kind of speed potential he'd bring to the table. I basically determined Holiday had average speed as fan graphs projected, he profiled as more of like an athletic version of Marcelo Mayer. And I didn't question the hit tool of power potential, but that speed element that I know that I know Drew Jones brings to the table was the determining factor for me at the time. Had I known that Holiday could have 60 or even 70 grade speed and his ability to play a premium position, that would have led me to go with him. But I say all that to make the point that it, it wasn't that long ago, maybe three, four months, that many smart people, yourself included, say had Drew Jones as an elite prospect, you know, a, a prep player that enters a reputable top 10 prospect list right after being drafted is about as high as praise as you can give someone. You know, you're essentially saying this player has number one overall potential, and obviously Jones has gotten off to a rocky start. I, I understand that rankers need to make adjustments. I found that to be one of the most difficult aspects of ranking prospects is just how to balance the scouting grades, stats, age versus level, position, and everything else that goes into it. And when a player who looks great on paper – you know, doesn't have the stats to go with it. it uh, it's just to back it up. It can be challenging to know how much to adjust players like this. But long story short, I, I can see the argument for Drew Jones anywhere from the back end of a top 50 to the back end of a top 100. I think it's an overreaction if anyone has him outside the top 100 because most of the tools that made him so coveted are still in play. I mean, if you have Jones around somewhere around number 75, you know, that feels like a good spot to me. You're not throwing them on a pile with a bunch of players who need to completely prove themselves, but also acknowledging it hasn't been like an ideal start to his career. So I still kind of believe in Jones long-term. The family pedigree and tools carry a lot of weight for me, and it may take him more time to get the hit tool where we want, but I definitely see him being a power speed threat down the road. And, and he's a player I would probably end up buying from you in a trade if you're willing to sell him. Yeah, and it's a. I mean, it's a lot easier for me to just say sell sell low on him than for someone to just click an accept button where they're getting, you know, say like Mason Wynn or 
Carson Williams or, you know, Johnny DeLuca or that type of thing back for Drew Jones. Um, so I, I understand just, just writing it out. Um, but I do just want to kind of, you know, it's more, it's more than just kind of number scouting, uh, with this one for me. Um, so there, there's there's reasons to be concerned um, beyond just what uh, what you can see in the, the limited statistical sample there. Uh, any of the other players we kind of talked about, maybe touching on that we haven't gotten to that you wanna you wanna mention something about, Michael? Um, I mean, I, I could I could go through Norby if you want me to, but uh, he's he's not a particularly exciting guy for me. I mean, yeah, I, I mean. So I guess I'll do quickly on Norby and then I'll, I'll hear you, what you got to say. Uh, like I, and I, I was on uh, the eyes have it podcast with Chris blessing um, Monday. And I mentioned, uh, mentioned this, but it is, it, we are kind of getting to that phase of the Orioles uh, rebuild where it's starting to clarify to me who the surefire keepers are, who the guys they are going to build around are. And who the guys they might have to trade away, uh, and I kind of compared it to like when the Astros were trading away, you know, Teoscar Hernandez and Derek Fisher and J.D. Davis and Colin Moran. Uh, you know, it wasn't because they they hated those players, but it was just they didn't have uh, necessary room for all their prospects they developed, so they picked their favorites and they moved their kind of second tier guys, and I think. Connor Norby is sort of fitting into that second tier of, of prospects for the Orioles where I would be at this point, I would be hoping for a trade uh, if I had Connor Norby in a dynasty league. And I think he's the type of guy like Teoscar Hernandez went on to have a great fantasy career. Uh, we're seeing, you know, JD Davis uh, took him a little longer than, than it might have if he'd been with a different org, but now that he's with the Giants, he's kind of breaking out. Um, so it doesn't mean that that player can't go on to to really nice um, productivity, but I do think Connor Norby is sort of looking like a, an odd man out right now for the Orioles. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, I'll just quickly throw in, you know, I I did look into him for the first time I ever looked into him was because I saw him ranked on one of your lists relatively high compared to what I, I was expecting and. He's one of the few players where I actually didn't agree with your high ranking of him at the time. And I think, I mean, I, I saw the appeal as an advanced college bat that could go through the system really quick. But I think I was heavily influenced by the scouting grades I found. Like even on fan graphs today, he's listed with the below average hit tool, average raw power and average speed. I'm not necessarily saying those are accurate, but the, the lack of standout tool made me feel like he's more of a floor player than an upside guy. And to a certain extent, I, I think that's still mostly accurate, but he definitely had a big breakout season in double A last year and even crushed in triple A in the small sample. So I began, I began to see some more appeal and fast forward to this season. He's essentially been an average hitter at triple A at age 23. The power outburst has taken a noticeable step back and he's, he's still been relatively effective overall, but nothing that screams top end fantasy player to me. If he can somehow tap back into the power he showed in 2022, I think he becomes much more appealing. Ultimately, I don't want to see like I'm being too critical of him, but I said, you know, he could end up as the second baseman for the Orioles hitting near the bottom of the lineup or or trade is probably his best bet. Um, if he's not chipping in much speed, 
it basically comes down to how good the hit tool is, which is his best tool, and how much power is there. I mean, if he could ever work his way into like a tool on some team, I could see that value you're talking about compiling stuff. Otherwise, he's looking more like a bottom of third, third order type of guy. I mean, I completely understand how someone would have him in the top 25 or the top 100. You know, his proximity, success last year, it shouldn't be dismissed. So I have no issues with that, but I just think he probably loses prospect eligibility before ever emerging as a top 25 guy. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, – I know Michael Elias is just uh, really salivating at the idea of having three shortstops at second base, shortstop and third base in Jordan Westberg, Jackson Holiday, and Gunnar Henderson. Uh, that's just uh, every – every GM's dream to, to have three high end shortstops to deploy at three different spots on the infield. So um, Norby would be kind of in that, that next mix there, but uh, you know, he's someone I really loved coming out of the draft. Uh, I thought he was going to be a, a potentially plus runner based on what he showed in college that hasn't uh, come to fruition. And then uh, it does sort of seem to me like he's, you know, trying to um, maybe sell out a bit for power right now at the expense of that hit tool. So uh, he will be a faller on the update, um, but you know, I still think he's he's got a chance to end up being valuable for fantasy managers at some point down the road. Um, Michael, this has been uh, a ton of fun. Uh, wish we could go longer, um, but uh, I think we can, we can wrap it up here. Um, why don't you uh, let people know where they can find your work and follow along? Yeah. Uh, thanks again for having me on the show, James. I mean, you can catch me each week on the call up presented by triple play fantasy with my co-host David Mendelson and Vinny, AKA down on the farm. You know, we try to cover all the areas of the minor leagues, give people in all formats, something to consider. We've had a lot of amazing guests. So I'd love anyone listening to check that out. I'm pretty proud of the work we do there and, I've taken a pretty long hiatus from my writing, so my future in that space is still kind of up in the air. But you can find me on Twitter also at MPRichards1981. I'm not as active as I used to be for various reasons, but I'm happy if anyone there wants to connect and talk baseball. And I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Hell yeah, man. Uh, well, I, I enjoyed it at least. Uh, and uh, got to thank you again for, for taking the time. Uh, Love catching up with you. And uh think i'll be going on your pod in in a couple weeks so that'll be that'll be fun um thanks to everyone for listening to the roadwire uh, prospect podcast i will have the farm or the uh, top 400 prospect rankings updated on tuesday and i will have a mailbag episode on the wednesday after those go live so keep uh, keep an eye out for that uh, but thanks for listening everyone